0: And welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to Association.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a great show lined up for you today on Conversations with Consequences. We try to line up a great show every week. I hope we succeed. I hope that you um, are coming back to us every week for conversations uh, that elicit consequences, the great consequences. Today My TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson, will be co-hosting, and we'll be talking with Tim Carney. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He writes daily at the Washington Examiner, where he's a senior political columnist. We're going to talk about a book he wrote not long ago called Alienated America, why some places thrive while others collapse, as well um, as talking to him about the concern that many parents have about children still wearing masks as the new school year approaches. We're also going to talk to Tom Farr. He's the president of the Religious Freedom Institute about a recent uh, summit that took place just last week where very important speakers from all over the world brought the concerns, uh, the global concerns on religious freedom to an important conference, including former ambassador at large for religious freedom, Sam Brownback. We're going to discuss with Tom Farr, who knows so much about it, all the crucial issues facing the world when it comes to religious freedom violations. But, you know, but first, before all of this, I wanted to talk about, for a moment, about the the tremendous uh, That are happening in Cuba. Here, as you may know about me, since I mention it often enough, I'm a Cuban American. My parents. I, I was born soon after my parents were were exiled, along with my grandparents. I wasn't born in Cuba, but the fact of being Cuban is uh, really strong with us Cuban Americans. It's it's a real part of our understanding of ourselves. And for us, what it means to be Cuban is to be to be lovers of liberty, liberty, country, uh, God, family. Those are the things that that we hold uh, deeply in the center of our beings. That's why we adapt so well to the United States, because these are the things that activate Americans uh, to do all the good that America does all across the world. One of the good things that America does is welcome people like Cuban Americans to our shores. America is the welcoming, hospitable nation. So this past uh, these past days, seeing um, seeing the the people of Cuba hanging by their la- very last threat after sixty two years of forced immiseration terrible terrible poverty of of a kind that we can hardly imagine here uh, and a scarcity of of everything uh, medicine a scarcity of hope of, of work of of, of ideas that that can can get you from day to day. The idea that one day things will be better. All of that is missing in Cuba, and it's missing on purpose. It's missing on purpose because the the communist dictatorship. Even though that even though they blame the United States, they say it's all the fault of the embargo. Uh, the United States has never embargoed Cuba from receiving. Has never blocked Cuba from receiving uh, any kind of humanitarian assistance. From receiving food. From receiving medicines. Um, that simply has never existed. And also Cuba could uh, treat with other nations, right? I mean, if they don't want to buy from the United States, if they can't buy from the United States something, they can certainly treat with Canada or Mexico or the rest of the world, which always seems very eager to participate in things with Cuba. But we've seen finally the, the Cuban people say enough, enough with the lies uh, since 1959, the terrible lies you've been trying to push down our throats, that these terrible evil ideologies uh, about about what we should want and what how we should live when in in fact we barely live life is so tremendously terrible for them lately the people i've 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 been going to demonstrations here in miami here in miami there's so much fervor and so much love for our brothers and sisters in cuba i've been to two demonstrations so so full of real burning hearts hearts burning for for change real beautiful change for the people of cuba so that their lives can can resemble ours ours in, in the way that you know this country allows us to flourish and and just be be able to think and be free and feed our children and go to work and receive a fair wage and all the things that can't be done in cuba one of the things that has been so interesting is knowledge of this. There's a, the, the big phrase that is used in all these events in Cuba and in here, in protests and in demonstrations, is patria y vida. Patria y vida means homeland and life. So Fidel Castro, many years ago, his, uh, his big motto was patria o muerte, homeland or death. He was saying, you know, just pour all your energies into this communist revolution or die. That's what we want, you know, revolution or death. Now there's a, there's a group of young Afro-Cubans, young men, released this beautiful song called Patria y Vida where they say homeland and life. And, it, you know, I thought, of course, I see everything through a religious uh, lens because <laughs> I'm a fervent Catholic. And life is what God, what Jesus said to us that he was offering. God offers life. And wherever there is goodness and truth and honor and beauty, there is life. Life always accompanies all these things. So this the young people of Cuba are saying, we want our homeland, but we want life. And we want our homeland to be not anymore evil ideologies and oppression and tyranny and pain and torture and desires of escape we want we want to be able to build the things that that we need for our families we want to be able to to live a life that makes sense and we reject All these uh, are evil overlords who have been in power since 1959. That's a terribly long time. Anyway, I would ask uh, all our listeners to, to pray to pray to, maybe you could pray to the patroness of Cuba. She is Nuestra Señora de la Caridad del Cobre. I'll translate, that's Our Lady of Charity of Cobre. It's a little town on the coast of of Cuba. Please pray to the patroness of Cuba that uh, she will intercede for her Cuban sons and daughters and that something beautiful could happen on that island where nothing beautiful has happened for so long. And now we are happy to introduce Tom Farr of the Religious Freedom Institute. Welcome back to the show, Tom.
1: Great to be with you.
2: Tom, we're so excited to hear about this summit, and we're really looking forward to learning more. It seems like under the previous administration, the ambassador at large for international religious freedom, Sam Brownback, who is just a great human rights leader, it seemed that he was able to do so much work in the previous administration and now it seems this summit is the key the key venue for moving that work forward now that a lot of these people are out of government. So can you tell us the genesis of this summit and uh, give us some sense of what all these thought leaders on international religious freedom are speaking about this week? Well,
1: I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, Sam Brownback is a... Uh, is a mover and shaker and i have had the honor to be watching him from the beginning of his uh, conception of this and to help him a little bit and the way he's pulled this together is really extraordinary to begin at the end there are about 800 plus people here uh, at the omni Shoreham hotel in, in dc from wow. all over the country and uh, they are it 's an American audience for the most part. The whole idea here is to show Americans, some of whom are not terribly aware of the importance of religious freedom, what happens to people around the world when they do not have religious freedom and indeed are suffering religious persecution so his his idea was to continue what he had done in the ministerials along with Secretary Mike Pompeo, who, who I just heard speak, who spoke in person here at, at, this, uh, at this summit. Uh, and um, the idea was to, to, to gather Americans. The summit at the, uh, the, sorry, the ministerial at the State Department had people from all over the world. These are Americans. American citizens, political, religious leaders, and just people who who wanted to come here and see what this was all about. So it's so far it's a, bit, a big success and all of it Brownback's idea of uh, of a way to forward this this what uh, Pompeo called this morning, is a great phrase, this lovely god-driven uh, international religious freedom movement.
2: Tom, can you tell our listeners, everybody knows that international religious freedom is such an important issue, but can you help us to articulate why is it so important? Why is religious freedom for people of all faiths? Why is it so important for world peace, for stability, for human flourishing? Give us a, a broad view before we get into some of the particulars of the summit
1: okay well it's important because religious freedom uh serves so many functions it's a fundamental human right it's it's something that no human being can be said to have a fully human life without religious freedom it's the right to believe it's the right not to believe But if you do to join with others and to to worship uh, to develop your own uh, religious faith but also to contribute to your society and that's where the real payoff comes comes through for societies and nations uh and in addition to individuals and communities uh, when when a country has religious freedom and this is all easily verifiable just empirically and historically and i would argue in common sense that country has greater economic Uh, stability greater political stability greater opportunity for economic growth there are limits on government uh imposed just by the the virtue of the existence of free and equal uh, religious people in their communities so if you add it all up what you have is uh a uh a a source of of real stability internally in a country, a source of freedom and human rights that are connected to religious freedom. Almost all of them are. Uh, It's a source of undermining violence, violence that is caused by religious strife, Uh, fewer civil wars that are fueled by religion. And here's, and I'll end with this. This one to me is among the most intriguing and important. Where countries have religious freedom, there is far less uh, religion-related terrorism. Uh, it's in countries where religious freedom is absent, that religion-related terrorism is incubated and from which it is exported to the rest of the world. So religious freedom is a, you know, it's not just a twofer, it's much more than that. It is, it's is—it's a source for of, of flourishing for individuals and for societies and for international security.
0: Tom for religious people like us people who uh, worship and and have strong religious communities this is a no-brainer we say to ourselves uh, the fact that in and this one in our wonderful United States we are able to gather together and 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 worship and then bring our beliefs to the public square where where our beliefs can do so much good um, we know that this is good and this is positive but secular people um, they're missing they seem to be missing that understanding and how does your, How does your um, your meeting your summit help to to connect secular people with 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 that thing that seems so obvious to us?
1: Boy, there's a, that's a great question, and and uh, you know it's you you say it's secular people who don't understand the value of religious freedom. Sometimes I think there are some religious people who don't either and of course uh, this is not just a problem uh, out there in the rest of the world it's a problem that has uh, emerged in our own country as well but the answer to the question to me is the same one for everyone you, you simply cannot have uh, individuals who are who are living a fully human life without religious freedom um, and if you, religious freedom doesn't include the coercion of anyone to believe in anything. It simply means the freedom, in our case, the freedom of the church to not only to worship together and this of course has been challenged under COVID and to uh, receive the Eucharist and, and, and the sacraments, but it is the freedom. And I would argue the duty and the church has argued for, for centuries. It is our duty to go out into the world, not only to proclaim the Jesus Christ and to allow people to know him, but to, um, to fight for their freedom to do so so that's one way of uh of describing what's going on here you're not trying to trick anybody or pay them or co- let alone coerce them uh, but you are trying to create a situation and where in which uh, religious communities can uh, apply their wares so to speak on an equal basis Here is what we believe, and here's why we believe it. And what has resulted from that in the United States over two centuries is the most dynamic faith-based civil society in history we have. And and in the world today, we have faith-based hospitals, schools, charities of all kinds, nonprofits, policy organizations. Uh, Studies have shown that if you remove the faith-based elements of American civil society, it would collapse. There's no nothing like it elsewhere in the world. So this is so important. It's not just important to me and you as Catholics, but it's important to what created in the image
2: and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. And and Tom, I see from your speaker lineup, which is just incredible that so many wonderful leaders have been brought together. Um, I see that it's a very bipartisan group. I see there are representatives from many different faith uh, traditions. And I'm wondering if you could just pick out, it's sort of an embarrassment of riches here, but tell us about some of uh, the most compelling uh, addresses you've heard so far. You just mentioned Secretary Pompey and I know he's a real force and um, perhaps you could start with his address what what was he highlighting for for the summit
1: his the basis of his talk was about genocide and as you may recall before he left uh, office he uh, as he said uh, in his address um, with some resistance within the prior administration was able to, Uh, get agreement to declare genocide is taking place in China against the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, And uh, that's been very much a theme of the F-Day that that I've seen so far. We've also heard from Congressman Frank Wolf and and, uh, Chris Smith, two of the giants in this field, who talked about their experiences very passionately. Uh, It's uh, so steering to hear them. Uh, uh, but the the nub of this is hearing from people from around the world, and uh, I I want to I want to focus on a uh, we've had two terribly emotional and terribly effective uh, speeches from uh, one from a Uyghur Muslim who was uh, in a concentration camp in China for well over a year managed to get out. And was brutalized and saw not only herself, she said that part of my healing is to to do what is not natural to me to talk about what has happened to me and I mean it's uh, it's difficult even even thinking uh-huh. about her she was she uh-huh. was so effective uh, to hit to, to you know for the crowd to hear that, and then hear the the passion of the Americans who are behind this movement. I would also add that uh, Secretary, I mean, uh, Representative Henry Coyar of Texas, a Democrat of Texas, was on a panel and was very, very good on this. and talked with great passion himself about uh the 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 freedom of people to follow their consciences and how this country is always protected so what we have is this sort of back and forth you you have panels and others uh which do include some americans but they but then you have these terribly effective witness testimonies and they've just begun I mean, there's, you know, there's not uh, there going to be a lot of dry eyes and, and among these 800 Americans. So, uh, it, it's working, I think quite well because the, the personal testimony as you know, to, to listen to people who are not just talking about this in a, in an objective way, as passionate as they may be, including myself to, to, to listen, uh, to vulnerable people and and then they always end by saying, Do something. Help us. Help us to to overcome this. Don't let the Chinese do this to this. Don't let the Burmese or the 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 ISIS Uh, community do this the ISIS uh, terrorists do this I heard something this morning I didn't know and that is that the Yazidis which are a minority in uh, Iraq along with the Christians who have been brutalized by uh, ISIS 2,700 women and children are still held captive by this vicious organization they haven't gone away no one should think that isis and islamist terrorism in this sense have gone away so uh, it's very very effective uh, to hear the, the thought leaders speak passionately and and then hear from the, from the victims themselves.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie with Maureen Ferguson, my co-hostess and colleague at the Catholic Association. And we're very fortunate to have Tom Farr with us. He is the president of the Religious Freedom Institute. And he's telling us about this fabulous summit that he's spearheading on religious freedom all across the world. And, and how wonderful, Wonderful time to to hear uh, from the people who have suffered from their very lips um, there's nothing I agree like uh, personal testimony you know you mentioned a little earlier that there there was a Democrat at your at your meeting and I'm sure there's lots of them how is religious freedom a, a, a real bipartisan issue that everyone can get behind
1: well it should be and and I think that a lot of people believe that everyone says it um I've been around this long enough to be a little bit cynical, uh, because I know that not everyone means it. And it isn't, I'm not suggesting that there's anyone in this room or anywhere in the United States who who, uh, rejoices or even accepts the torture and suffering of others. The question is the remedy. Mm. The question is, what do we do about this? And what is the meaning of religious freedom? Does it really mean for everyone or does it just mean for those that that we think are are right and i think that some of that is emerging in our own country as part of the problem that there some of us i'll speak for myself catholics who are simply wrong about so many things that they need to be coerced to get out of public life. So that's what I mean when I say that Mm. not everyone means what they say when they say it's bipartisan. But I will say this, we had a a very good video uh, from, uh, from the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, who welcomed us all and and said that this was a very international religious freedom, very important to her, Speaker of the House. Um, I think we will probably have a video from Secretary of State uh, Blinken uh, this afternoon. So uh, we are getting some uh, really, I think, very important bipartisan, and it's important for these. Uh, these uh, victims and others from abroad to see this. I'll tell you one other one that'll be of interest to to our Catholic listeners is Arch- Archbishop Warda of uh, Erbil, Iraq, is here. I was with him this morning, and he will be speaking. <clears throat> I think it is tomorrow, and uh, we've already heard from an Iraqi Yazidi woman, uh, who I mentioned a minute ago, uh, of her her terrible. Uh, uh, ordeal uh, under ISIS. Well, Archbishop Warda is the Catholic hero here. He's the one who, to whom all these Christians fled from Mosul when ISIS arrived, and showed up literally on his doorstep, 20 miles away in Erbil. And he has basically been, in addition to the Archbishop, the CEO of the recovery uh, and restoration uh, actions in Iraq, a true hero as far as I'm concerned. So uh, it's, um, it's wonderful to, to have all of these people here to see this, uh, this bipartisanship, uh, uh, among American politicians, to, to see them say, okay, we're with you, we want to do something about this. I'm just hoping that uh, Archbishop border and the others can, can hold our feet to the fire.
2: Tom, I know we need to let you go, we're just about out of time because you need to get back to the summit, but can you tell us what is the situation in the Biden administration um, State Department on these issues, I, to my knowledge, I don't think they've named a new ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Do you have the sense that somebody will pick up Sam Brownback's torch that was burning so brightly and um, doing such good work? What What can you um, apprise us of
1: on that? Well, part? I certainly hope so. And I mean that you you put your finger on it. Will they name someone? Uh, in the model of the same Sam Brownback, who is a person of faith himself, and who who understands the problem, and can pull together these kinds of amazing uh, international efforts to do something about it, um, the fact that they have not nominated anyone so far is uh, is is a source of concern for me uh and uh frankly i'm a little bit worried about what the name would be once we hear it because uh i think we we need a person of faith we need a person who is dedicated to religious freedom for everyone uh religious freedom equality so um i want to be hopeful uh they need a chance to show us whether they can do this the the co-host that sam brownback has uh, would be a wonderful choice for the Democrats, uh, Ambassador Large. That's Katrina Lantos Sweat. She's the co-host of this. I've known her for many years. Uh, I've worked alongside her. The daughter of uh, Tom Lantos, the only Holocaust survivor, so uh, in the in the U.S. Congress. So. Um, Let's let's all pray that this will this will happen soon, and that the ambassador at large will be somebody cut from the cloth of uh, Sam Brownback and Katrina Lantos sweat.
0: Tom, thank you so much for making time out of your busy day to join us uh, right during right during your summit. Uh, that I know is doing so much good here in Miami. We've been watching with uh, with uh, riveted attention people fighting for their freedom in Cuba. Part of that is uh, religious freedom, of course. Um, so it's it's wonderful to hear that that this is such an important topic to so many important people, and that you've been able to gather them together. Um, to our listeners, please make sure to visit RFI. Dot org to see all the wonderful things that are going on at the Religious Freedom Institute. So thank you, Tom.
1: Thanks so much, ladies. Great to be with you.
0: Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm very happy to have... Uh, Today, my TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson, will be co-hosting, and we'll be talking with Tim Carney. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He writes daily at the Washington Examiner, where he's a senior political columnist. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tim, you wrote a book called Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Everything that you wrote about has gotten a lot worse since the pandemic. One of the things that's alienating Americans from each other is mask wearing. Many families are concerned about their children being forced to wear masks, uh, for instance, outside in the heat, as our colleague Ashley McGuire wrote about in the Wall Street Journal this week, her daughter in tennis camp. Do you find this whole mask wearing thing part of the alienation of America?
3: Absolutely, in a couple ways. One is just very directly. It's harder to get to know people and to, to with people Mm -hmm. when you're wearing masks and so if we're requiring them or even just wearing them unnecessarily then it does have a harm people say oh it's easy to wear a mask and sure after if you're not playing tennis in the 95 degree heat but instead you know hanging out on the metro or something like that it it seems pretty harmless to do but in the long run people don't know their neighbors as well if everybody's always masked up but i also think there's a psychological element to it it's highlights that we see other people as threats other people are dangerous they are to be avoided but that's exactly the problem that's what alienation is is what i argue is that people don't see that we need to be together in order to thrive as human beings so you know the people who who try to say a mask mandate or anything like that is is costless that's definitely not true sometimes it's worth the cost when the cases were really high last year You could argue it was worth the cost, but it's certainly not costless. It keeps people from knowing one another and causes people to see other human beings as threats.
2: And Tim, so many parents are now wondering, with children returning to school in the fall, whether there's going to be a requirement that their children are masked at school all day long. And I know there was a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that talked about how the carbon dioxide is mixing with the fresh air, elevating carbon dioxide dioxide content in the inhaled air, and that this is more pronounced for younger children. So now I think I think any mother could have told you that there was a problem with this. And and as you said, perhaps at one point during the pandemic, this was wise. But at this point, with any teacher who wants to be vaccinated is vaccinated. And we see that the science is catching up with the common sense. So w- what advice do you have for parents as we're preparing for the
3: coming school year? Well, I mean, I would certainly remind people that there's more than one that cost benefit risk analysis you can never just look at one risk right like the risk of somebody getting a positive covid test is not the only risk out there especially as you said if you have vaccinated teachers and children proven not to get the case uh, seriously for the most part then you're saying, well, what are the other risks? And, and anything that you're talking about from the journal, the, the, uh, the, the difficulty in communicating with students, all of those are other costs. So, I mean, I would certainly say schools in the end are going to have to follow what any local government does, but certainly lobby the local governments to make sure that they're not imposing unnecessary mask mandates and make it clear to the schools You know what? I know that there's some lawyer telling you better safe than sorry, but that's not always true. We don't try to reduce every possible risk to zero. Otherwise, we would never let the kids play sports, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You wouldn't let them get in a car to go to school. And so, I mean, I think that a lot of municipalities and schools are going to be incredibly risk averse, but only looking at one particular risk of somebody spreading COVID. There's many other risks. To students, and those need to be uh, addressed as well.
0: I feel like the time these last uh, this last year and a half, almost two years of the pandemic, has the the media. The politics around it, they have ginned up this idea that, that there's just this one thing. If we could just escape the, the pandemic, the virus, everything would be fine, right? So we, we concentrate all our attention on that one risk. I totally agree with you. We have to balance risk and think of all the different risks. And I think about, I have a, a daughter starting high school, and that's, um, she's my youngest. And, and I've watched my older children deal with this time of life when they when they start becoming young adults, young or teenagers. And the, the idea that she has not been been able to have that face-to-face contact with people and understand, yeah. I, I find it super damaging in that age group, especially. And, and we've seen, uh, you know, higher suicide rates in, in young adults and teenagers. And I wonder if, uh, you know, masks are contributing to that.
3: Well, I mean, I think the, the bigger factor, um, I, I think masks don't help. I think so, but Keeping kids away from other kids has been so harmful, and sort of the lockdown, the canceling of sports, you see it in increasing increase in crime. And this again, a lot of crime. Some crimes, you know, if somebody's stealing a car, it's because they want a car. If somebody's committing murder or arson, often that's just antisocial behavior mm. and that or, or assault. And that means that, like, the loss of other positive outlets, whether it be sports or just socialization in school, all of those things can be lost, especially for a kid who only had a few years of getting sort of socialized in in a school, in a community setting, in a church, you take all those things away from them, and they're just much more likely to uh, commit these crimes. So I certainly think the lockdowns have just exacerbated that problem. One of the things I've studied is that extremism, whether it's in the form of joining a gang or becoming a white nationalist or joining ISIS, usually what that is is about somebody who doesn't have other things they belong to. I mentioned a church group, a sports team, a school, a strong neighborhood seeking that natural human instinct for a tribe. And so our lockdowns especially pulled people away from other kind of little platoons. And so you were much more likely to have either individuals acting out or people joining less healthy tribes, a gang or something like that.
2: So Tim, that's the perfect segue to your book. So let's switch gears here. Let's talk about your book, Alienated America. I couldn't recommend it more highly if you're heading to the beach, pick up a copy before. It's an entertaining Read in addition to being informative. So it's a good B-tree, but you know, with some heavy content. But you traveled the country, Tim, particularly flyover country. You interviewed many people in different walks of life to kind of glean their stories, and you did all kinds of research to explain why failing social connections are responsible for this great divide in America. So tell us what brought you to write Alienated America.
3: It was interesting. I mean, so some of it just had to do with politics back in the Republican primary trump saying the american dream is dead and me finding that that really resonated and i thought that's interesting because usually politics try not to sound so negative why do people think the american dream is dead and so i set out to find it thinking that might have something to do with economics or i'm i'm here in dc like something more policy oriented but again and again what i found was the loss of belonging, the loss of social ties, the loss of community institutions, that we live in a sort of a deinstitutionalized life. People are less likely to go to church. High schools become bigger and bigger, and so somebody doesn't feel they belong to a school community. They just happen to shift their kids off there and get them back and hope they come back with some learning. People know their neighbors less. Recent studies have coming out showing that, especially among men, adults have fewer friends than they did a generation ago, and that is really what's behind either, you could look at all sorts of problems, our opioid epidemic, political animosity that we have going on, the retreat from marriage, the falling birth rates. I argue that those are all rooted not in something mostly economic, but in the cultural collapse of people belonging to things. Again, like a church, a school, a local public library, a club, a bowling league. That's a term Robert Putnam used in his book, Bowling Alone, 20 years ago. That. That's the root of our problems.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. She's our co-hostess today. And we're chatting with political writer Tim Carney of The Washington Examiner discussing his most recent book, Alienated America: Why some places thrive while some collapse. Listening to you uh, list all the things, Tim, that that are gone, that have gone missing in the social connections. I was thinking of my own bringing up. I, we didn't have a lot of social connections because we we were emigrating, but we had a really strong family. And I wonder if. That's a fatal combination of a family, your family, your family, the, your, your, your nuclear family, but also your extended family uh, not being there for you on top of all these other social disconnects.
3: Yeah. So, well, for one, I say that family strength both is a cause and an effect of community strength. Communities need families and families need communities and um, that it's really hard to, and it's sort of if you read all of the all of the Little House on the Prairie book, it kind of points from this like, well, we're rugged frontier people to kind of eventually establishing that to be a strong family, you really benefit from having others around you. I sometimes joke, you know, a wise woman once said, it takes a village to raise a child, but you, you know what I mean. Like you need a good school. You need babysitters. You need neighbors. You need role models. And you need somebody to watch your kid who's napping while you quickly run out to the store to get something from the farm um, and that so family is ultimately what people need the most but it's really hard to do that well mm-hmm. outside. Of a strong community, and I, I do think sometimes someone like me—I'm, you know—I'm a, a conservative Catholic. Sometimes people like me will emphasize family, which needs all the emphasis, but accidentally de-emphasize community. Mm-hmm. That families need an infrastructure, a scaffolding to really thrive.
2: And of course, Tim, marriage rates used to be you know, similar across different classes, but now it's much more of yep. a middle class or upper middle class way of building a life. So you have elites who are reaping the benefits of the stability of marriage, but in many instances, uh, the working class is missing out.
3: Yeah, that surprises a lot of people. If you say marriage rates are falling, some people think, oh, it's. The the people who go off and and study uh, women's studies at Oberlin and get their college and master's degrees and and hate marriage. That's not statistically where the uh, retreat from marriage is happening. It's happening among uh, the working class, people without a college degree, women without a college degree. Are now much less likely to be married at age forty than women with a college degree. There used to be no difference in 1960, and now there's a major difference. And I, I use that age of forty just to sort of work in the fact that yeah, women with college degrees get married later, but also divorce is more common among the working class, and so that you just have more children raised outside of marriage, more people having um, only one kid because they you know they don't have a A lasting reliable marriage and that's just not an atmosphere in which people are going to thrive marriage family all those things require community support and you get it sort of in two environments one the neighborhoods where sort of everybody has a college degree and professional jobs and Stable jobs and jobs that lend themselves to like volunteering and the Little League, that kind of thing. Or two, some really strong religious communities that can be middle class, working class. I talk about Mormon places in Utah or like Dutch reform places in Iowa and Michigan, where you have these really strong church communities or Dutch Jewish neighborhoods near my house in, in Montgomery County. Those places really build the infrastructure, but outside of those really strong religious communities, it's only really the, the sort of super zip code, the highly educated, professional places. And so what that means is that A secularizing country is sort of survivable for rich people, (laughs) and Mm. it's deadly for the working class.
2: And of course, I've heard you talk about how women need marriageable men. And, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about women's flourishing, authentic femininity, in contrast to more of a feminist worldview. And I know you have a lot of observations about why men are not thriving Mm. in today's culture. And it's not just economic, you say. But tell us about your, heard you speak about your visits to the man camps of North Dakota, where there's this (laughs) fracking, or there has been a fracking boom, had been a fracking boom.
3: I ended up in North Dakota and then heard people talking about these men who were in law school. I was speaking to them and half of them were talking about dropping out of law school and going to Williston which is sort of a a fracking town because it just sounded amazing to them so I I drove out and I I visited there and visited one of what they call the man camps or just like these big sort of networks of trailers out there in some empty lot in North Dakota near the, the fracking field and a man camp every guy gets his own little bedroom that's like 15 by 15 with a big flat screen TV and then there's a big like common room mess hall with like 20 pool tables, 20 ping pong tables, massive gaming consoles, literally like a, fast food, hot, all-you-can-eat bar 24-7. So You can go up and get as many cheeseburgers and french fries and nuggets all day long with your paychecks, which are very large. Even if you don't have uh, anything more than a high school degree, you can show up as long as you pass your drug test, get paid enough to spend as much money as you want at the bar. And so one of the studies, this one researcher I right know said, well, I think the reason people aren't getting married is because they can't afford it. And so she looked at all these fracking towns where these working-class men suddenly had a ton of money pouring in and found there was no uptick in the marriage rate at all. So I realized outside of a community that is built to support and encourage and model family formation, making money, climbing out of the poverty, out of even the working class, doesn't lead to marriage. It really isn't about money that the working class is getting married less It's about having strong, stable communities that support
0: it. My husband is a convert and his family, a convert to Catholicism. His family is very secular. One of the things that he really adores about the church is the feeling of community that is built into our parish, even into the wider archdiocese. He loves to watch how it builds all these connections for people who would otherwise be alone. You know, the older man who has no family nearby and he has a stroke. He comes back from the hospital and people gather around him to take care of his needs in a way that a family would and our our community is very thin uh, sometimes for people without family the church does that so he spends a lot of time trying to uh, convince his his secular Family and his old friends about these amazing connections that that churches build uh, and temples and mosques and every you know every other way that that people gather together to worship God. So it's it's wonderful that that your book addresses that the, that thickness of community that churches built.
3: Yeah, and I uh, you write about the some of the Jewish neighborhoods near me. I went out to Toledo, Ohio, which I was surprised to learn this, but has a very large Muslim community. And one of the things that one of the the women said who runs one of the there, is she said, we wanted to make sure when we built this mosque to be more than just a masjid. That's the Arabic word for house of worship. So fundamentally, at their heart, they're a house of worship. But they have a big community hall, and they their sort of main religious ceremony of the week is Friday at noon, the Jumah. But they said so on Sunday we just decided to have a giant potluck dinner every single Sunday. And any of these sort of Muslim who shows up in Toledo, everybody says, just go, go on Sunday to the, the Islamic center and you will meet people. You'll meet somebody to hire you. You'll meet a roommate. You'll, you'll meet somebody to date. And they really became that hub. And that's sort of the secondary role that any house of worship can and should play. And frankly, for the middle class of America, where people don't belong to country club or aren't as likely to have a network of, of college friends or anything, the uh, House of Worship is the central fundamental institution of civil
2: society. So Tim, unfortunately we have to wrap up in just a second here, but this talk of the American dream being dead is just too depressing for us optimistic and hope-filled ladies. So let's end on a high note here, because I know you are an optimistic person. Every time I see you, you have a big smile on your face. So what's the good news? What are some of the solutions? How do we individually and as communities rebuild a healthier culture?
3: The good news is that the the solution happens on an individual and community level. And in, in the book tour when I did this, I met so many people who came to the same conclusion I had, not from reading my book or anything, but just from being social workers. And they said, you know what helps people, relationships. So in sort of broken inner cities and rural communities that are coming trying to recover from a factory closure, there's tons of people out there who said, We're gonna help these people not through some government program or just a handout, but by building, intentionally building community structures that then can organic support people and so all around the country I'm finding there's people doing the work and seeing the success of rebuilding community one neighborhood at a time.
0: Well, that is certainly optimistic news, Tim, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all you do in bringing these ideas into the public square. To our listeners, make sure to catch all of Tim's writing at thewashingtonexaminer.com and make sure to buy his recent book, Alienating America, at Amazon or your local bookstore, Better Building Community. Thank you so much, Tim, and we hope to have you on again.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation. The Risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. What he's going to say to us, as he said to his first apostles, come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. After the hard work of their apostolic journeys, the apostles were obviously tired and Jesus could see it. Moreover, as St. Mark tells us, people were coming and going in such great numbers that they didn't even have an opportunity to eat. So Jesus had them go off with him in a boat to a deserted place. The whole rhythm of human life, involves not just work but rest just as god in the genesis account rested on the seventh day such rest is essential not just to recharge but to focus with god on the meaning of what we've done and are doing on the gift of our life and how we're going to invest it jesus took the apostles away not just to give the apostles a break but to review with them all that they had experienced on their apostolic journeys in a similar way jesus regularly seeks in different ways to draw us away from the daily hustle and bustle television, and gadget screens so that he might similarly refresh us, helping us to review with the grace of his light what we've been experiencing in the various aspects of our life. It's an opportunity for him to help us press the reset button on our life, to strengthen us in whatever struggles we're enduring, to move us to thank him for blessing, to help us to see things more clearly and to reprioritize what's most important. This is what he seeks to do first each day in daily prayer. He wants us to come away with him to the state of the desert, without distraction, to converse with him. How do we do with regard to that daily invitation? Do we prioritize it or resist it? He also seeks to do this on the Christian Sabbath, on Sundays, in which out of love he even makes the invitation a command. When the Lord gave us the third commandment, as we see in the book of Deuteronomy, he told us the reason why he was telling us to keep holy his day something that at first might seem a non sequitur remember that you were once slaves in the land of egypt this is why the lord your god has commanded you to observe the sabbath day for not keeping the sabbath in other words We're becoming slaves again. Slaves to work or what work can help us obtain. Slaves to the errands we try to get done on the weekend. Addicted to entertainment or to sports or to other things. Jesus wants us to come away with him on Sunday so that he can renew us. Help us properly put God at the center of our week. He wants us filled with his love to use the Sabbath so that we might love God back and love those he has made our neighbors, most especially family members and friends. How important it is for us Truly to live Sunday as a day of the Lord, if we want to remain spiritually fit and serene on the pilgrimage of life. But the church has often used these words of Jesus come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while to highlight the importance of taking extended time away with the Lord so that He might refresh us, and particularly pointed to the importance of days of recollection in an annual retreat. A day of recollection is at least a period of a few hours. Depending upon our circumstance and availability can extend to a half day or a full day of consecutive prayer. It can be done at any time of the week. Some are able to dedicate one night a month. Others will carve out a given time on Saturday or Sunday. Many priests whose nights and weekends are the fullest parts of their pastoral schedule make time on a set afternoon. There are organized days of recollection at retreat centers or by various ecclesiastes movements and parishes and shrines, but someone with self-discipline can also fruitfully do one on one's own. But it's a monthly time in which we're able to go deeper with the Lord Jesus into our relationship with him, to review the larger trends of our life, to get his light for the various decisions we need to make, to ask his help for the situations in life that are weighing on us, to make resolutions to depend on him more. One of the most rewarding experiences in my priesthood was offering a monthly day of recollection on first Saturdays at Sacred Heart Chapel in Yarmouth Port on Cape Cod. It would start at eight in the morning and finish at one. But a couple of hundred people would come for Mass, quiet prayer, and Eucharistic adoration, a couple of talks on the spiritual life, and a good monthly examination of conscience and confession. Used to have to ask several other priests to come to help me hear confession. So many said how helpful it was for their spiritual growth, and it was easy for anybody to see. When we make time for the Lord, He always lavishly repays the commitment. An annual retreat is a more extended time of prayer, in which we're able in God's presence and order, ordinarily with the help of a retreat director offering various meditations or one-on-one guidance to give god our full attention for an extended period of time so that in addition to all the fruits of a day of recollection we can review with him the previous year and receive his light and encouragement to make resolutions for the upcoming one traditionally most retreats last about a week which depending upon the format can be five to eight days but for those for whom that would be too difficult it's possible to do one from friday night through sunday for those who have more time there's a possibility of a 30-day retreat which allows us to make major course corrections in our life. Retreats are normally done in retreat centers away from daily distraction, but they can also be done in parish churches, as some new movements in the church are effectively doing. St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, in his spiritual exercises strongly urged retreats to take place away from daily home and activity, so that we wouldn't be eaten up by distractions. But the key is to respond to the Lord's summons and make time each month for a day of recollection and each year for a retreat. Many people are phobic of that much silent time alone with the Lord. We say our lives are too complicated and busy. Somehow, nevertheless, we find time each month for dinner engagements, though our favorite television shows, and going to a child's or a grandchild's baseball games or plays. Somehow, most of us also find time each year to spend various weekends, whole weeks, or even more, for various forms of vacation and travel. This shows us that retreats and days of recollection can be a litmus test of how much we generally prioritize God, the things of God, and the good of our soul. Even the busy of us have some time, but we often spend it on things less important than God. We may have to arrange a babysitter for our kids or a caregiver for elderly parents, but if we're able to do it for other activities, we can do it for God, and it's worth it. A few years back, Pope Francis spoke about the fruits that come from recollections and retreats in the hope that more of the Christian faithful would take advantage. The person who goes away with the Lord in this way, he said, experiences the attraction the fascination of god and returns renewed transfigured to ordinary life to service to daily relations bearing within him or her the perfume of christ he added the men and women of today need to encounter god and retreats offer space and time for intense listening of his word in silence and prayer and contribute to renewing one who participates in them in unconditional adherence to christ helping him or her to understand that prayer is the irreplaceable means of union with Christ crucified. Summer, when most of us have some vacation, is often a very good time to make an annual retreat. I did my own at the beginning of this month, and it was very rewarding, as it always is. So we prepare for Mass this Sunday. Let's get ready to hear Jesus say to us from Peter's boat, Come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while, and be prepared to respond generously and faithfully, each day, each Sunday, and with his help, each month and year. Those who take him up on this invitation, like the apostles, will never regret it. God bless you.
0: Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers.